Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Hebrews, um, we're going through that book, Hebrews chapter 3. And we'll go ahead and just read through the chapter. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For, his, for this one has been counted worthy of, much, excuse me, of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation, and said they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest." Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So going back to verse 1, The writer here says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. So who is this letter written to? Well, I'll give you a hint. The title gives it away, basically, right? Hebrews. So this was written, this letter was written to, uh, as he says there in chapter 3, brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. So what we know is that these are Jewish men and women who had put their trust in Christ Jesus as their Savior. They're Jewish believers in Jesus. Notice the progression of Revelation. We've gone, this is the third chapter we're in. In chapter 1, the writer introduced God's Son, and he said he's, he's exalted above the angels. And then in chapter 2, we find out his name is revealed. His name is Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a time. Why? To, in order to identify with you and I. And now here in chapter 3, his ministry is revealed, and that is Christ Jesus. Uh, the Greek is Christos, and the Hebrew is Mashiach. 
And that means basically anointed one. And so this anointed one, the, high, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, you'll recall as we started in chapter, excuse me, in the book of Hebrews, we talked about the overall theme of Hebrews. And the overall theme of the letter to the Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets of the Old Testament. He's better than the angels. And now we find out he's even better than Moses. Now for you and I, we probably, you know, okay, he's better than Moses. You know, that, that fact might get lost on you and I because we're Gentile believers. But to a Jew, that is saying a lot. Because to a Jew, Moses was the lawgiver. He was very highly regarded by Jews. And the Messiah was the enforcer of the law on the Gentile nations. And so to them, to a Jewish person, Moses would be first and the Messiah would be second. But here the writer is explaining that Jesus is better than Moses. And the writer here is going to explain how by comparing and contrasting Jesus to Moses. And then he's going to compare the people Moses led to the people Jesus leads. And he's going to give you and I, because he leads you and I, a very practical application this morning. And so what he starts out with, he says, Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So now, not only the writer of the Hebrews calls Jesus the apostle, but he also calls him the high priest. However, it's not until later on in chapter 4 and basically later on in the book, that he's going to deal more in depth with the high priestly role of Jesus. But this morning, he's going to be addressing basically the role of Jesus, the apostle. So what is an apostle? Well, an apostle is a delegate. It literally means he that is sent. And so in Exodus chapter 3.10, God told Moses, he said, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so Moses was God's apostle. He was sent by God to deliver the children of Israel from bondage to Egypt. When we get to the New Testament in 1 John 4, 9, it says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. So Moses was the apostle of God, sent in the Old Testament to, to Egypt, uh, to Pharaoh, to, send his, to deliver his people free from bondage. Jesus was God's apostle, sent to this world to deliver you and I from the bondage to sin. And Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Now, what does it mean by his house? You know, in the Bible, the word house can have two different meanings. The first meaning is what you and I would typically, typically think of when we hear the word house, right? It's a, it's a place where we dwell in. It's a, it's a physical house, a, a place, a building, basically. Well, there's a story in 2 Samuel chapter 2 that might help you and I this morning understand the two meanings of the Bible uh, uses for the word. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, King David, he's sitting there in his house, and, and he's, in a, he's in a house, he's not, you know, traveling around in a tent or anything. And he says to Nathan the prophet, he says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside curtains, because it was still in the tabernacle, and they would carry it around different places. And David wanted to build a house, a building, for the ark of God to dwell in. He wanted to build a temple. 
And God told Nathan the prophet, and by the way, Nathan said, hey, that sounds like a great idea. David, go for it. And Lord bless you. And, uh, and then later on, as Nathan left, God spoke to Nathan and said, Nathan, I want you to tell this to David. And so Nathan came back to David, and, and this is the words of the Lord to David. The Lord said, would you build a house for me to dwell in? Have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? The Lord tells you that he will make you a house, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. And what God was telling David was, he was not referring to a physical house or a building, but he's referring to a family that he would raise a family to David uh, from which the Messiah would descend from. And so in the Bible, a house can either refer to a physical building or a group of people. And in the context here, in Hebrews chapter 3, when he's referring to Moses, the house is the children of Israel and uh, the ones that he led out of Egypt. And when referring to Jesus Christ, the house are the believers in Jesus Christ who make up the church of Jesus Christ. And that's you and I here this morning. And so in verse 3, he says, For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Jesus is better than Moses and worthy of more glory than Moses. Now Moses was a faithful servant in the house of the children of Israel, but just like an architect is entitled to more glory than the house that he builds, Jesus founded and established the church, and therefore he is worthy of more glory than the servants in the church, or even the church itself. Interesting thing there in verse 4, it kind of popped out at me, but in verse 4, I think the writer is alluding to the fact that Jesus, as the builder of his house, is God. Look what it says. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Now, it says here that Moses was a testimony of one who would come after him. And in fact, Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 told the children of Israel, he said, the Lord your God is going to raise up a prophet like me from your midst. uh, And you should listen to him. I mean, I'm paraphrasing it slightly. But that's basically what Moses said. And that was that they understood that that was the Messiah that was going to come. And while Moses was faithful as a servant in his house, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses as the builder and founder of his house. He's the owner of the house, as well as a faithful son in his house. And then the writer goes from there and he tells the readers that they are part of Christ's house as long as they continue to hold fast in the faith. Now this letter that was written to the Hebrews was written at about 67 A.D. It was about 34 years, roughly, after Christ's ascension and the birth of the church. And so for 34 years, these Hebrew believers, they had endured persecution, not only from unbelieving Gentiles, but even from their own countrymen, from the Jews themselves. Not only that, they were no longer bound by Jewish 
ceremonial law under the old covenant. Man, they've been set free from that. Can you imagine the relief and the the liberation that they must have experienced? But you know what? 30 years have passed. And they must have started to miss the ceremonial aspect of observing the law. You know, sometimes having walked by faith for a time, I think it's tempting for you and I to want to feel more spiritual rather than to just trust by faith that the Lord's pleased with us and we're, we're living for Him. We sometimes want to feel like God is pleased with us. We want to feel more spiritual. How do we do that? Well, we start doing legalistic things. We start doing things to make us feel like we're more spiritual. And as Paul says, having begun in the Spirit, you know, they, it seems like they must have been tempted to return to some of the ceremonial law in order to be made perfect by the flesh. And so he provides them here with an example from their own history to serve as a warning for them. And so in verse 7, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and I love that the writer brings this out, because it's a good reminder to you and I that all Scripture is inspired by God, right? All inspired by God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You think about all these Bible stories. Now, I grew up going to church, and uh, I grew up, my parents read the Bible in our house. And, and uh, you know, I, from a young age, I knew a lot of the Bible stories. We had little books about Jonah and the whale and, you know, Noah and the flood and all these different Daniel and the lion's den. And if you're reading those stories to your kids, it's great. But I want you to understand, I want your kids to understand, they're not just stories. These are real people, real events, and they're written for us for a purpose, for our own learning. They're not just cute stories to go, oh, that's a cool story. No, there's a purpose behind it. So I'd encourage you, man, dig into those stories and find out what God's purpose is in them. Well, the writer here says, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, he says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works 40 years Therefore I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. What is the writer talking about? The day of trial. It's referring to the time when the children of Israel came to the waters of Meribah. It's recorded in Numbers chapter 20. I want to read a little bit out of it to you. I'll just read a few verses here and there. But in Numbers 20 it says, Now therefore... Uh, Excuse me, now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. God had been leading the children of Israel through the desert, through the wilderness. And he had been providing manna, food, angels, you know, food from heaven daily for them. He had been been supplying for them, for their needs. And they came to this location, and there was no water. And they were thirsty, and so they started grumbling and complaining. And it says, And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. I mean, they're just starting to complain. And then they started complaining to Moses and said, Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. Well, God spoke to Moses and told him to speak to the children of Israel. And so it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. 
Now you've got to understand something. This is not in the beginning of their wilderness wandering. This, is, this has been going on for some time. And Moses, man, he had been getting really tired of these guys grumbling and complaining. And so he's just fed up. He's had about all he can have. And instead of just speaking to the rock, Moses comes before the people and says, Here now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his hand, with his rod, excuse me, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. God wasn't too happy with Moses at that point. And then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Basically, Moses misrepresented God. God wasn't angry with the people, but Moses acted like God was angry with them. And so, as a result of that, Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land. Well, in Exodus 17, verse 7, there's a little bit of a commentary on the name of this place, Meribah. It says, So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah. because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? See, the children of Israel had unbelief that God would provide for them. They even reached a point of accusing God of evil and of abandoning them. And so the writer here, verse 7, or excuse me, verse 11, he says, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Well, what got, caused God to keep them out of the promised land? You know, and you know the story, right? They, they traveled to the, to the promised land. Uh, God, or actually it was the children of Israel's idea. They just wanted to send in some spies to spy out the land. God had already said, hey, I'm giving you this land. But they, they said, no, let's send in some spies, check it out. They'll bring back a, a report to us. And so they chose 12 spies to go into the land. And uh, 12 spies went into the land. Uh, they checked it out. They brought back some fruit from the land. They returned to the camp of the children of Israel. And, uh, and back in uh, Numbers chapter 13, verse 30, when they're all gathered together. It says, Then Caleb, he was one of the spies, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But it says, But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people with whom we saw in it are men of great statue. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Enoch came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so were we in their sight. And it says, So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. Or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, 
who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. They didn't like that news. And so God's response to all of this is recorded in Numbers chapter 14, verse 22. It says, Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt in the wilderness have, and in the wilderness have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. And then a little bit later in that chapter, in verse 28, So say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. This is what the writer Hebrews is referring to, this, this story here. And so in Hebrews uh, chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Brethren, uh, excuse me, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You know, you and I, as Christians, we're in a dynamic relationship with the living God. It's an important thing to understand. Don't, don't grow weary of walking by faith in a living active relationship that's what a relationship is it's not static it's dynamic it's growing it's changing and that and and we serve a living god and so in verse 13 he says but exhort one another daily while it is still called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin you see not only is your and my relationship with the lord dynamic right it's not static It's growing, or at least it should be growing, and it should be changing on a daily basis. But you and I were called into a fellowship of believers, just as we are here today. And we're to exhort one another uh, daily. And that word exhort, it it basically means to seriously encourage one another. You know, we're really pretty good at judging and condemning one another, aren't we? But we're told to encourage one another. It's interesting I was thinking of this verse, and Jesus, you know, he was speaking to his disciples, and he says this, he who is not against us is on our side. And, you know, it has to do with some people that were doing things, and the apostles, you know, they, they basically were not right with the apostles, and yet they were doing things for the Lord, and, and the apostles were like, hey, wait, they're not with us. And, and Jesus said, hey, if, he's, if they're not against us, man, they're on our side. But you and I, I think we have a tendency to kind of twist that around and say, if they're not on our side, they're against us. Right? And we, get, we can get judgmental and con- on condemning of, 
our brothers and sisters. But what we're really supposed to be doing is encouraging one another daily. Now, the word, the fact that he says daily assumes that we're involved in each other's lives, right? More than just occasional. We should be involved on a daily basis with each other. And so in verse 14, he says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief is sin, and it is deceptive. And if we leave unbelief unchecked in our lives and in our hearts, it will result in disobedience to God. Now, the children of Israel, they were set free from bondage in Egypt, right? They were led out of Egypt by the passing. Remember, they came through the waters of the Red Sea. It was a miraculous event. And they they passed through the waters and they came into the wilderness and they were finally set free from bondage in Egypt. And when you and I put our trust in Jesus Christ, just like the children of Israel, we're set free from bondage to sin. And for you and I, Egypt is a picture of this world. And we've been set free from bondage to the sin of this world. And just as the children of Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, you and I have passed through the waters of baptism. Now, when the children of Israel left Egypt, you know, they traveled a little bit in the wilderness, but it was a relatively short period of time before they reached the border of Canaan. And God had promised them the land. You know, there were victories to be won. You know, they were, to, they, you know, such as the destruction of Jericho. There were giants to slay. You know, Caleb was all excited about it. He's like, there's giants in the hills? Give me the hills, man. I'm, I want that land. There was land to conquer for all the tribes of Israel. There were enemies to drive out. But God would go before him. He said, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to drive them out for you. They, all they had to do was trust him and not shrink back and go into the land, and he would give them victory over victory in their dynamic daily conquest of Canaan. When you and I put our trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we're kind of like that too, because God now opens up a whole new land for you and I to enter into and to live victoriously and to conquer victoriously. And like the children of Israel, man, there's giants to slay in our lives. There's victories to be won. There's enemies to be driven out. And God has promised you and I victory if we'll just trust him. And so we're called, just like the children of Israel, just go into the land and just trust me and I'll lead you. And that's what you and I are to do as Christians. We're to just go and trust the Lord and we're called to walk a daily walk of faith. Now sometimes people look at Canaan, the promised land, and they they think, well, that's heaven. It's a picture of heaven. But, I mean, I don't think there's giants to slay in heaven. I don't think there's battles to be won in heaven. There's no enemies to drive out of heaven. Jesus has driven them all out. There's no enemies in heaven. So I don't think Canaan is a picture of the promise, or the promised land is a picture of heaven. I think it's a picture of the believer's life here on earth, the abundant life lived in victory when you and I are walking in the Spirit.
when we're filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. And you see, the danger, I think, for each one of us is to let our hearts harden through unbelief. And again, if unbelief, if we don't deal with it, it'll result in disobedience. Well, how does that happen? I think there's three ways. First, legalism. You know, when walking by faith is not enough, we want to feel more spiritual, so it's tempting to slip back into our own efforts at spirituality. Right? We, we get caught up in legalism. We get caught up in rules and regulations. And as long as I'm following whatever rules I think I need to follow, I feel pretty good about myself. I feel like I'm spiritual, like God's pleased with me. That's legalism. That's a form of unbelief. This is exactly what I think the Hebrews were struggling with, these Hebrew believers. They were tempted to go back into the ceremonies because, man, it had been 34 years. You know, it's like, man, I, I kind of miss that pomp and circumstance. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.3, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? That's a real temptation. People struggle with that. Well, that's one way, legalism. What's another way that we can have unbelief? And I think it's weariness. You know, sometimes you and I go through some battles, and they're long, drawn-out battles. And we grow tired of persevering. And the temptations to want to give up. You know, the battle is waged so long, we begin to despair and we begin to give up hope. And we think, well, God, you must not be blessing me. I mean, what's up with this? What's the use? Well, we just need to persevere because the enemy wants to win the war through attrition. He just wants to whittle you down. And we need to persevere. Galatians 6, 9, Paul wrote this, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Sometimes God allows us to go through, you know, sometimes our our battles aren't quickly won. And the reason why, God's doing a work in our own hearts. He's wanting to build character in us. He's wanting to build faith in us so that we'll trust Him. And so don't grow weary. but, But weariness is a way that we can have unbelief. Another is prosperity. You know, when things are going really good, we can kind of settle into a comfortable, complacent, static relationship with the Lord. I've seen it in my own heart. I'm sure you've seen it in your lives. You know, things are kind of good. You know, pretty soon you've, you just, you're just not growing. You're just static. You're, and, and it's okay. Jesus is my Savior. I know I'm saved. But you know what? We start to kind of start to get attracted to the things of the world. And we have a harder time even recognizing who the enemies of our souls are because we've become so close to them. You know, it was easy for God to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt but it took him 40 years to deliver uh, Egypt out of the children of Israel. And it's the same with believers. You know, Jesus told the parable of the seed that fell among the thorns and was choked out. Remember what he said about it. He's, he's speaking about them. The seed that fell on the thorns says, these are the people, you know, they received the word. It says, in the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So there's three things here that can, that can, you know, forms of unbelief. Legalism, what's the other one? Weariness and prosperity. So what's the solution? How, how do we deal with that? Well, Paul wrote this in Ephesians 5.18. He says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And in Galatians 5.25, he says, If we live in the Spirit... Let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, I think for some of us Christians, 
Sometimes we think being filled with and walking in the Spirit is an option. It's like if you really want to get close to the Lord, you do that. If you don't, that's okay. You know, it's, it's a choice. Well, it's not really an option. In fact, it's the only way you and I are going to live victoriously in that abundant Christian life. It's not, a, and you know, the other thing is it's not a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Well, I was filled with the Spirit back in 89. You know, I'm good to go. No, it's a, it's a daily being filled with the Spirit. We're to be continually filled, being, being filled with the Spirit. And the reason why is because our life is a dynamic life. It's active, and there's a daily interaction with the living God. And He wants to fill us each and every day. So it, it's an ongoing thing. You know, interesting thing. The children of Israel had a battle with the Amalekites. It was back when they were still in the wilderness at Rephidim. And it's recorded in Exodus chapter 17. And some of you may have know that story or not. But in this story, the, the, the Amalekites, the sworn enemies of Israel, they're, they're battling the children of Israel. And Moses is up on a hill. And Aaron and Hur are there with them. And Moses is told to raise his hands. And as he's raising his hands, the battle, it starts, the, the, the children of Israel start prevailing over the Amalekites. Things are going good. But you know, I mean, how long can you hold your hands up, right? You, you get tired after a while. And Moses was an old man by this time. And so, you know, his hands started coming down. And they noticed as soon as his hands started coming down, man, the Amalekites were starting to win the battle. And so Moses and Aaron are, are standing there with Moses. And they're like, wow, he, he's having a tough time. So what they did, they had him sit on a rock and they held his hands up. And, and so then they held his hands up during the whole day so that they were able to win their battle against the Amalekites. And of course, that's a beautiful picture of when you and I, you know, somebody's struggling, you and I come alongside them to lift them up. I mean, it's a beautiful picture. There's a lot of application there. But why would, did he have to raise his hands in the first place? I thought about why, why the raising the hands? What was significant about that? You know, I don't know about Moses' generation, but I know about my generation. What happens when you see somebody walking out of a building with your hands up? Or you see someone on the corner, what do you think? Man, they're surrendering, or they're being held up, right? It's a, it's a sign of surrender, raising up our hands. What that is symbolic of, I believe, is surrendering to the Holy Spirit. Because that's, because, you know, okay, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? I just pray, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. It's, by, it's surrendering yourself to the Holy Spirit. Just allowing Him to control you, to lead you, to guide you. I think it could be why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Man, it's just, Lord, I can't do this in my own strength. Lord, I'm tempted to go back and, and, and get that, fall back into legalism. Lord, help me. Lord, Lord, I'm so weary of this battle. Please give me the strength because I don't have the strength anymore. That's, that's surrendering to the Holy Spirit. That's asking the Holy Spirit to guide you and to fill you and to use you. Well, I want to leave you with one last verse just to encourage you. And that's what Paul wrote the Philippians because, you know, sometimes I think we can get kind of self-condemned, right? We can feel like, man, what's... I just... I'm always struggling in this area. I'm always, I'm always messing up. I remember we had this one younger believer that we led to the Lord and, and uh, he would call me every once in a while or we'd get together every once in a while and he'd go, man, I, you know, I... I I don't. I feel like I lost my salvation, you know. And I have to. Oh man, I have to encourage him. I don't want to say his name because you'll know who he is. But I wanted to encourage him. Like, man, 
don't don't go there, you know. And it would it would always be kind of like picking up off the ground and and you know dusting them off. And come on, you can do it. You can do it. And and but we need that reminder sometimes. Well, Paul wrote this, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you with that this morning. God, who's brought you into this promised land, the abundant life of the He's not going to. He's not just left you. He's, you're not an orphan. He's given you his Holy Spirit. And he wants you to just lean on him and trust him. And, and he'll guide you through this life. And he'll give you those victories. But the danger for you and I is to fall back into unbelief. And so I want to encourage you this morning and maybe exhort you, whatever. Seriously encourage you, don't fall back. Persevere because uh, your reward is coming soon. Why don't you stand? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word, and, and I thank you for each and every person here this morning, Lord. Lord, I know there's no accidents why we're here, Lord. You've, you've led us here, and there's a purpose why we're here. And Father, I pray for each and every believer here this morning. Lord, I pray that they might just learn in their own lives, in their own experiences, how to surrender to you, how to be filled with your Spirit, to be led by your Spirit, Lord. Father, I pray for those that are struggling with their faith, Lord, that are struggling with unbelief this morning. Lord, I pray that this might have encouraged them this morning, that they might know that you are alive, Lord, that you want to have a daily relationship with them, Lord God, and that you are guiding them if they'll just stop to listen to you and if they'll just trust you to follow to follow you. And so, Lord, I pray for those that might be struggling in that area, Lord. Lord, I pray that you might fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we might live that abundant, victorious life that you have for each one of us. Because you've promised us that victory, Lord, if we'll just take the land. And Lord, I pray that we might be like that generation of Joshua's, Lord, that that went into the land and they, they conquered the land. And Father, I pray that we might go in there, Lord. I pray for those that are battling giants this morning, Lord. Things in their lives that just seem so overwhelming, so they seems like there's no way they can get past it, Father. I pray that you might give them the victory over those things. Lord, those that are struggling with, with uh, areas in their lives that, uh, Lord, that they need, to, they need to deal with and they need to get rid of, Lord. They need to drive them out of their hearts, Lord. I pray that you might give them that victory as well. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, we don't have to perform to win your love, Lord. You already love us. And you proved it by sending your son to die for us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that grace. Lord, you are gracious. You are compassionate. You are slow to anger. And Father, I thank you that you are going to complete that good work that you began in each one of us. And so I pray that we might just trust you and walk in obedience to you, Father. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.